Well, surprise. For the first time in several months, I'm not going to tell you to turn to the book of Hebrews. But I will next week. Instead, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Again, if you're not used to using a Bible, that would be found on page 807 in these black Bibles around you. I'd like us to pause for just this one week to reflect on the birth of Jesus. Not necessarily because it's Christmas time, but just the way things worked out and the way I'm looking at Hebrews 13. I'd like us to take Hebrews 13 every verse by verse for the next 10 weeks and consider how the gospel affects the way we live together as Christians. And so since that was a little bit interrupted last week, and then I was sick and whatever, I'd say let's just take one more week off, and then next week, starting into the new year, we're going to look at just Hebrews 13 for 10 weeks and see how the gospel affects our community, the way we think about love, the way we think about marriage, the way we think about sexuality, the way we think about money, the way we think about church leadership, and all of the different issues that are brought up in chapter 13. I just think all of them are very timely, and I didn't want to just breeze over them in one message today. So let's do that starting next week. For now, we're in Matthew chapter 2, tis the season for a Christmas message. So here we are. I have three simple points to make from chapter 2 of Matthew's gospel, a familiar story about the visit from the wise men. We're going to look through this story, but I want to first make the first observation. It is easy to reject or hate Jesus at Christmas time. It is easy to reject or hate Jesus at Christmas time. For in the very first Christmas that ever was, the birth of Jesus, we see hatred and rejection of Jesus quite clearly. Look with me in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house... They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. 
for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Friends, is it hard to see in this passage that it is easy to hate or reject Jesus at Christmas? The king King Herod and the political leaders of the world all through the time of Jesus' life, his birth, up until his death, feel threatened. The word here in verse 3 that says Herod was troubled is agitated. He's not pleased that there is someone else who might be the king and dethrone him. See what's going on here? If you look at history, you'll know that King Herod is a very suspicious and protective man of his throne. He killed his wife because he felt threatened by her. He killed his kids. He killed hundreds of people that were supposed to be the successors after him before he died to make sure that no one would take over his throne ever. The man was insane, was he not? Eventually, all the political leaders all the way up to the point of Jesus' death, will play a part in rejecting and hating Jesus. Herod did not accomplish what he wanted, which was to kill Jesus. Isn't that plain from reading the story? We see Herod hears there might be a king. Well, let me find where he might be and then kill him. He has no intent to go worship Jesus. Hopefully you saw that irony there or the trickery or the deceit of Herod. He's trying to use these wise men to find where the baby Jesus was, this child. And then he wants to have him killed. If that wasn't obvious by the rest of the passage when he kills all those children. What anger. What kind of crazy person kills this many people? Can you just imagine the mothers in this room, the fathers, losing their children, just born, having a little baby sleep at my bedside for the last four months, and to know that someone could come in and rip him out of my hands and kill him. This scene, this picture, the hatred, all because of one particular child, Jesus. I hope that you can see this morning the opposition against Jesus at his birth. It's not all cheery and rosy around Christmas time in the first Christmas. But friends, if you just stop there, you will miss something significantly important. Do you see in your own heart how easy it is to reject and hate Jesus? If you look at Herod and think, that man's crazy, and he is, but you fail to see in your own heart 
your own desire to reject Jesus as king over your life? That you also want to dethrone him and you would like to be the king and ruler of all? Then friend, you may not even know what it means to be a Christian. This is step number one. To admit, to realize that it is easy. We are born sinners with the tendency and the prone desire to reject the king of the universe in the same way that Herod did. Maybe we don't do it as crazy and as overtly and and outlandishly like he does. Friend, every time you sin and choose God's way or choose your way above God's, you are doing the exact same thing Herod is. So friend, I ask you, do you see the opposition and the flow in not only your own heart, but in this world, the opposition against Jesus? And more particularly, do you have the eyes to look around you and see in the world that as Christmas time comes around, it seems like there's growing hostility in the world about Jesus? Can you see in political leaders and decisions that are being made around us, whether it's school boards or mayors or governments or Supreme Court decisions or kings in this land or in others, People don't like Jesus. There's opposition towards Jesus, and especially at Christmas time. But when you see those things, is there any reason for us to trouble? Should, should we be like all of the people in Jerusalem? Do you see what happens when Herod's troubled and agitated? And then it says that all of Jerusalem with him Should we join in the agitation of King Jesus? And should we be troubled and worried about those political leaders who are even if we're not? Most commentators think that that's actually what's happening here. All of the people in Jerusalem are not so upset with the fact that there could be a new king because that might actually be an improvement. It's more what he might do to get rid of this King Jesus as we saw later in this story. He'll do anything to get rid of him, include kill a bunch of quote-unquote, innocent young babies. So when you see political unrest, you see opposition towards Jesus, do you feel at all like you're at odds against the world? Well, you are. This is normal. This is Christmas. It's normal for Jesus to be opposed. But be reminded of Psalm chapter 2. The kings of the earth will rise up and the rulers will band together against the Lord and against his anointed, as we see here most clearly. But what is God in heaven doing? He laughs. He scoffs at them. For he knows that here and throughout the whole story, these rulers are, as Proverbs 21.1 says, they are a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he will turn it wherever he will. Do you not see that even the atrocities of King Herod are the fulfillment of prophecy of the Lord Almighty? And so he will make his purposes and plans regardless of the opposition against him. And so, Christian, if you are not opposed to Jesus this morning, then take heart that even the world around us that is opposed, and increasingly at Christmas time, their plans will not prosper. That's point number one. It's easy to hate or reject Jesus at Christmas. Point number two, it is easy 
to miss Jesus at Christmas. It is easy to miss Jesus at Christmas. I'm referring here to verses 4 and 5. We see that Herod, hearing of the word that these wise men have come, these magi, and they've declared that there might be a king of the Jews, and they're looking for him. He then asks in verse 4, all the chief priests and scribes of the people. So this is the chief priests of the nation of Israel and scribes who had been lawyers and experts in the Old Testament law. And he says, hey, what does the Old Testament say? Because Herod was appointed king. He, he doesn't have full Jewish lineage. He's not really this expert in these issues. So he asks the people that are. The people that should know their Bibles well. And they do. They answer him quite clearly. They said, behold, he should be born in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it was written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah 5.2. And in Micah 5.2, it's just basically a, a short excerpt in, in a series of prophecy about judgment. There's a glimmer of hope about a ruler who will come and he will be in Bethlehem. So this was clearly seen to the scribes and the rulers of that day and for pretty much all Jewish people up to that day as a messianic promise of a ruler who would come and make things right even in the midst of all the chaos and judgment. So there's hope for you people. That's what Micah said. There's hope. There's one that's coming, a new ruler, and he's coming through Bethlehem, small little village outside of Jerusalem. But did you notice something interesting about the story? These scribes, these chief priests, who know quite well where he's coming from, don't go pay him honor. Don't go bow down and worship. And all we see in Matthew's gospel from this point on is that they only grow increasingly more hostile. Do, do you see the connection here? You could be very familiar with the Bible, but you could miss Jesus altogether and he could be right in front of your face. This is exactly what happens to these men. And what a terrible thing if that would happen to you and me. Well, I know my Bible really well. I'm in church every week. I read my Bible every day. I go to Bible studies after church and before church. I go to Bible studies throughout the week. I'm listening to sermon podcasts. I'm in the Bible. But friends, it is an awful thing to be surrounded by the Bible and never actually see Jesus. Because there's all kinds of religious teachers that are like these men who are teaching things from the Bible and from God's Word, and they are missing Jesus. And I ask you to beware of them. Run from them. Do not listen to their teaching. Find different churches. Find different podcasts. Read different books. Surround yourself with different Christians. Find the people that when they read God's Word, they see Jesus in it. Not the people that are like this. There are some who do this today. Not just then, but today. There are some who teach God's Word and they miss Jesus because they really just want your money. Basically, 99% of all TV preachers fall in this category. Turn off your television. Do not listen to TV preachers. They want your money, and it's a scam, and it's awful. God says very severe things for men like that. 
charlatans. They will receive a stricter judgment. Not everybody should be teachers. Some people do this because not they want money, but they want fame. Because if they could become the next biggest and greatest pastor and their church grow and everybody comes and listens to them and I can only hear sermons from so-and-so. Friends, this happens way too often in churches today, doesn't it? People are coming and hearing Bible teaching and they're missing Jesus because they're getting a man. May that never be true of Embassy Church. Whether I'm here or someone else, whether I'm preaching or I'm dead, may Embassy Church, for until Jesus returns, be a church that has men who care not about their fame or their glory or book deals or whatever else people might say about them, but only care about giving you Jesus. Some people do this to show off their intellect and get in great debates to try and prove they're right. And so their sermons are talking to a whole different group of people than the people that are actually in front of them. So they just miss Jesus altogether because they're doing apologetics all the time or they're debating the times or they're reading the newspaper along with their Bible all the time. And it's all about issues and intellectualism or debates about Who's right or wrong? And sadly, some people teach the Bible and they focus on minor details and miss the main point. And my guess is that a lot of you from Matthew chapter 2 have heard teaching or examples of how we can make a big deal about minor things in the text and miss Jesus altogether. Let me give you some examples. People make a big deal, and I've read way too much about this star. I mean, what's this star? Is it a comet? Is it Jupiter and Saturn coming together? Because that happened maybe around the 7th BC timetable, and that could work out. Is it, is it potentially something that's supernatural? And then there's just all of these explanations and ideas. And friends, you could read all day today about the star, and you can miss Jesus. The star is not the point. Let's not have debates about the star and whether or not, well, can we trust the Bible because there's, a, there's potentially a supernatural star thing happening. Read chapter 1 right before chapter 2. There's a baby being born by a virgin. If you can't believe in a supernatural thing happening here in chapter 2, well, then you can't believe in the one in chapter 1, and you just can't get Jesus. Friends, my best guess about this star is it's probably something very similar to what the Israelites had in the wilderness where there was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. Some illuminary thing, and they call it a star because they didn't know what else it was. There was a light. Because how else would a star or some light not only lead them to Jerusalem, that could have been astrology, but more specifically it says that it was over the place where he rested. That's too specific and too close. Like if a star gets that close for you to see where Jesus specifically is in which house he's in, then somebody's going to be burned to death. You see, like Jesus doesn't live past that moment. Stars are big and bright and they kill people if you get too close to them. So it just, it just can't probably be what we're thinking when we think of the stars in the sky. So let's just not make a big deal about the stars. 
And oh, what a shame it is when this is what sermons tend to focus on. Well, now we can trust the Bible because we found out in the 7th century that Jupiter and Saturn came together and that makes a lot of sense. That's not why you trust the Bible. I mean, you can have those debates, but if you miss Jesus, then you're missing everything. Another example. A lot of people spend a lot of time looking at these wise men. Well, who were these wise men? Where were they from? Were they from Arabia? Were they from Babylon? Were they from Persia? And there's all these debates and discussions. And how many were there? Were there three? There were three gifts. Maybe there were three wise men. There could have been one wise man or two wise men. It says plural, so I'm guessing at least two. But there could have been 20 wise men. Do you realize how incorrect your nativity scene is now? I don't want to be the curmudgeon that's poo-pooing on your nativity scene. But friends, two years ago, most of you weren't here. I did that earlier by saying, look, it's more than likely that Jesus wasn't born in a cave, and it wasn't likely that Jesus was born in a stable. It says that there was no room for him in the upper room, the same word that's used when Jesus has the upper room Lord's Supper. There's no room for him inside the guest room of the house that they were staying in. Read closely Matthew chapter 2 with me. Matthew 2, it says in verse 8 and following that Herod tells him to go search diligently for the child, and when you found him, tell me. So they went in verse 9, and then it says that the star, like I said, very specifically was over the place where the child was. Now, when they saw the star, they were very, very excited. It says it in four different ways. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Wow, they're excited. But verse 11, and going into a house, Where's that in your nativity scene? Because he was probably born in a house, friends. The manger that he is laid in is probably the feeding trough in the, what we would call a garage of the house in the front room of what would have been first century houses in those days. You would have what we would maybe call a garage, this open room, and there would have been a feeding trough for where the animals would stay at night. And because there was this census, there was no room in the upper room so they laid him down in the manger, which was in the house. That was Luke 2, two years ago, so I'll recap for all of you. But look here, Matthew kind of helps clarify that when the wise men come, these magi, they don't come to a stable. They don't come to a cave. They don't come because there's no room in the inn. They come to a house. Let's just read our Bibles more carefully and we'll see that like, we just get so mixed up on all these details and traditions when we just miss Jesus altogether, miss the story. We have sentimental traditions and we don't really have the true Jesus and story. So these are all things that would be, I don't know, because of speculation, postulation, all kinds of ideas and traditions that have been passed down for 2,000 years, and there you go. Now you have your nativity scene that's terribly incorrect. <laughs> but I have mine in my house. I'm not telling you to burn them or get rid of them, as long as you don't bow down and worship them. <laughs> now, it's easy. It's easy to miss Jesus when we get sidetracked with all of these details. So do you see that the main point in all of this is so different than all of these points that have been made? The major point, the major point is all about Jesus. So we've said that it's easy to reject Jesus because our hearts are leaning that way, because the world is leaning that way. It's easy to miss Jesus because religious teachers teach all kinds of weird things that aren't about Jesus. 
Friends, let me hopefully set the record straight. Point three, it is easy to find Jesus at Christmas. He is there, crystal clear. He's all over this place. It's all about him. It's not about the star. The star is about pointing you to Jesus. It's easy because the whole point of this section of Scripture, as I understand it, is that all the nations of the world are welcome and are going to worship Jesus. That's why it's easy, because Jesus is for everyone. And in fact, around Christmas time, the stories in both Matthew and Luke show that he is found by the most unlikely of people. Consider Luke's gospel, and we see that he's invited by shepherds to come worship. And shepherds would have been social outcasts, as you might know. But what about these wise men? They would not be much better either. The word magi could be that they were foreign magicians. They could have been all in the taboo kind of magic arts. Every time you see that idea in the Old Testament, if you're a Jew, it is seen negatively. So strike number one, they're magi. Strike number two, they're from the east. They're not Jews. Do you see what I'm saying here? The unlikely of people are those that at Christmas time come to Jesus. That's because it's easy to find him for anyone. Anyone around the world or anyone no matter what situation that you find yourself in. Whether you're rich like wise men or you're poor like shepherds. Whether you're a social outcast like both of them, shepherds and wise men. Or whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're from the East or the West, whether you're from Jerusalem or not, which means he's available to all of us this morning. It's easy to find Jesus if you see him. The thing you need to know is how to find him. Now, what's interesting about this story is that the wise men, potentially, it could be, like I said, some sort of a luminescent light that leads them to Jerusalem. But notice in the story that when they get in verse 2 to Jerusalem, they don't know where Jesus is. They have to ask, where is he who is born king of the Jews? So whatever that light was or whatever the stars were, even if it was just they saw Jupiter and Saturn coming together, it was insufficient for finding Jesus. What was the source of them finding Jesus, the scriptures. Notice that it was Herod who acquired and accompanied all of the, the scribes and the chief priests and asked them, where is he going to be born? And then he tells the wise men, okay, I want you then to go where he's supposed to be in Bethlehem. Then God supernaturally reveals to them where specifically he was to be, but the location of where Jesus was to be found could only be revealed in this story by the scriptures, and so it is for you and me. The only way to find Jesus is through the scriptures. And there's good news for you and me. Jesus is all over the scriptures, so therefore he is easy to find at Christmas. I could go for the next hours about all the different ways Matthew chapters 1 and 2 are being fulfilled both directly from prophetic words like Micah 2 saying, hey, 
Micah 5.2, Jesus, the Messiah, will be born in Bethlehem. Oh, fulfillment of prophecy. See how the Old and New Testament are talking about Jesus? But it's like times that by 10 or 100. These chapters in Matthew 1 and 2 are telling you over and over again that the Scriptures are about Jesus. Starting in Matthew 1.1. Now, I'm not going to go on for hours and hours, but let me give you a few examples of what I mean. In Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 1.1, it's telling you that this is the book of the genesis of Jesus Christ. That's the word there. It also means genealogy, but it also is genesis. So sometimes we could start thinking, okay, he's now telling us of the origins or of the, the beginnings of the story of Jesus. That makes sense, okay. But there's a reference then to the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, here's the, the account or the origins of the whole earth. And there you have genealogies. And those genealogies match up perfectly with this phrase in the book of the genealogy. So there's this textual connection to Genesis and Matthew 1.1. And it seems to me quite clearly when you look at the way the writer writes, there's this wonderful, beautiful connection between Adam, the first Adam, and the origin of humanity, and the second Adam, Jesus, the origin of the new humanity and the new creation. So in Matthew 1 and 2, you have creation and new creation. In Matthew 1 and 2, you have examples of exodus and restoration. So when you hear this story and you think, what's that whole deal about there being this killing of babies and leaving Egypt? And then there's this quotation in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And then you see Herod then gets angry and he kills all these children. And then that then fulfills what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, that a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation and Rachel weeping for her children. Now here's the tricky part. You go back and you read Hosea that's being quoted here and you read Jeremiah that's being quoted there and you will see that's really not having anything to do with Jesus, at least on the surface. And this is what I mean by, now, all of you kind of are probably following when you see Micah says that there will be a ruler that comes from Bethlehem. And no, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. See, the Old Testament and New Testament. Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy. But what Matthew does is something even further. He's showing that the exodus that is being referred to in Hosea is now happening in Jesus, and that Jesus is the new Moses who's leading a new exodus to deliver the people in the same way that Moses was out of Egypt, so is Jesus out of Egypt. So it's not a direct correlation like, oh, so just like this, Jesus is going to do this. No, no, it's this whole typological picture, this idea that just like these pictures in the Old Testament of how God delivers and saves his people, so Jesus is going to be like this and save and deliver his people. But even greater, even better than what you saw in the Old Testament. And that's just me scratching the surface. And I don't know how much of that's going over your heads or if you're tracking with me, but the whole point is this. From whatever prophecy or angle, whether it's prophecy directly like Bethlehem to Bethlehem, or this typological Moses to Moses, Jesus is the new Moses, Matthew is screaming at you. It's about Jesus. See Jesus this Christmas. It's easy to find him. 
Are you looking for him? He's all over the scriptures, Old and New Testament, Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, prophets minor and major, illusions and ideas. Say, for example, what did Annie just read to us from Isaiah chapter 60? Arise and shine, because in the midst of great darkness, there will become a great light, a glorious light, and the king's And the nations will come and they will bow down and they will worship him and they will bring gifts. And gifts of what? Frankincense and myrrh. Are you kidding me? Isaiah chapter 60 is being fulfilled in Jesus. Why else did we read that scripture? It sounded nice. No, because this is what's being happening right here before you in Matthew chapter 2. Arise. Shine. The light in the midst of great darkness. Do you see the darkness all around you and the hatred and the rejection of Jesus? The murdering and killing of all these kids. That's some darkness. And here shines a bright light. And the kings and the nations, literally the nations, we have wise men from other nations coming and they're bringing gifts and the wealth of the nations is being presented before him. Friends, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these scriptures. He's all over the place. Do you have eyes to see him this morning? He's easy to find. In a variety of different angles and ways, no matter which way you want to go about it, this story is about Jesus. The purpose of God is the praise of Jesus Christ from all peoples. That's the one sentence summary of Matthew chapter 2. The purpose of God in giving us Matthew chapter 2 is that you would see that the praise of Jesus Christ comes from all peoples all nations, all tribes, all tongues, and languages. Therefore, Matthew begins his gospel with the first worshipers of Jesus being Gentiles from the nations. And he ends his gospel saying, go make disciples of all nations. Because he will be honored, treasured, and worshiped from everywhere, from everyone. Do you see it now? Everywhere and everyone, including you. It's easy to find him. You don't even need to bring gifts. The gold, frankincense, and myrrh, it fulfills the scripture of Isaiah 60, and it points to the death of Jesus. There's more going on than just giving gifts to Jesus here. This is not a requirement. This is not an example for you. Well, if I want to come to Jesus and worship him, I better bring my gold. No. Gold and frankincense were used in the temple for worship. They were coming down and bowing and acknowledging his deity. Myrrh was used for burial, and Jesus was given myrrh on the cross. You see that? Jesus in the cradle offered myrrh from the kings from afar, the magi, whoever they are. And the king Jesus on the cross offered myrrh. They hold up the sponge mixed with his fragrances to try and offer him something to drink. He cries out, I thirst, but he rejects the drink. He breathes his last and he dies on a cross because Matthew chapter 1 says, this Jesus was born to be the Savior of the world for the forgiveness of their sins. Do You see, Jesus, not just his birth, not just his birthplace, the God who's come down from heaven for you. I love that phrase. I've said it again and again. 
All you need this morning to come and find Jesus is nothing. It's all you need. The sad thing is, is that a lot of you don't have that. Your hands are full. Your agendas are full. Your schedules are too busy. Do you have nothing this morning? Empty? Broken? Humbled? Do you look at all like these wise men who fall down on their face because you're so in awe of the God who has come and made himself a person? Friends, let's find Jesus in Christmas. Let's pray.